This morning we come to a portion of God's Word that has uh, from time to time been kind of strange and unfamiliar territory for many Christians. In, in turning our attention to Psalm 83, we are turning our attention to what is called an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is a, a psalm or a song in which the people of God call down judgment on their enemies. Sometimes we come to these psalms in our Bible reading and we think to ourselves, ouch, um, maybe I should just skip ahead to the next one. It's my hope this morning that as we study God's Word, that we'll remember that truth first. This is God's Word. He, he doesn't mean for us to skip over it. He means for us to, to take this in to, to think about it and to apply it to our lives. I, I hope that we'll at least be able to see the truth of Psalm 83 with clarity and think through a few ways in which it applies to our daily lives and even how we can pray this psalm. How we can pray this psalm for God's enemies and for ourselves. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, open up your Bibles to Psalm 83. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, then you should be able to find Psalm 83 beginning on page 492. 492. And while you're turning there, let me offer just a little bit of background on our study. The Psalms are, as you may know, a, a wonderful collection of prayers, poems, proclamations, and songs of the ancient people of God. We come to Psalm 83 in the Psalter, and it's interesting to kind of note the context in which it springs up. The Psalms leading up to Psalm 83 are filled with prayers and petitions to God. The editors of, of many translations, perhaps even the translation you're holding now, seem to, to catch this through the headings. If you were to, to read the Psalms leading up to Psalm 83, you would see that in Psalm 79, the people of Israel are asking God, How long must we suffer? And then in Psalm 80, that desperate situation, it gives way to Psalm 80. There, the people of Israel petition our God to restore them, to restore their fortunes. And in Psalm 81, God gives a response to His people. He essentially tells the people of Israel that He has answered their petitions for rescue and restoration, which means He can answer them again. And the plea comes out from the people of Israel once again in Psalm 82. Rescue us, O Lord. And all of this shapes the response of the people of Israel in Psalm 83. They urge God to speak and not remain silent. They urge God to act just as He has acted in the past. They base these petitions upon their desire to see God make Himself known. To see God reveal Himself to be who He is, the Most High, over all the earth. Read Psalm 83 now. A psalm. A psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. 
For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gibal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dumb for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are most high over all the earth. I wonder if you notice the kind of general flow and structure of this psalm. In verse 1, we're given the main petition of the psalm. The psalmist Asaph, and I think that more generally we can say, the people of Israel who first sang this song want God to speak and act. Then in verses 2 through 8, we meet the main problem. The enemies of God and His people are conspiring to conduct violence. Finally, in verses 9 to 17, the main petition of verse 1 is expounded upon. It's specified. The psalmist tells us just precisely how he wants God to speak and act. We're going to study Psalm 83 under three headings. First, crying for help. Second, conspiring for violence. And third, calling for vengeance. Crying for help, conspiring for violence, and calling for vengeance. And if you're taking notes this morning, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, crying for help. As we do, just read once again the very first verse of Psalm 83. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. This is a beautifully constructed poem. Did you notice the bookends there on verse 1? The two words that begin and end the verse are O God. Technically speaking, this is, is, is what is known as an inclusio. This shows us that the material situated between the bookends is significant. Situated between this cry to God, the Most High over all the earth, are parallel and mutually explanatory petitions. Do not keep silence and do not hold your peace or be still. Now before we even know the particulars of the problem, we are confronted with the profound nature of the problem. God is not speaking to His people He's not acting for them. Or at least, at least, that is how things appear from the psalmist's vantage point. Nevertheless, this is a challenging situation. God's silence is not always what it seems. In times of sorrow and silence, the people of God petition Him to speak and act. And we do not do this just once. But again and again, 
Remember, there is here a double address and a double petition. The psalmist twice calls out to God and he twice petitions him to speak and act. This is an earnest, eager, and desperate plea. In times of trouble, we have very little trouble calling out to God in desperation. In times of tranquility, we often have forgotten that our situation is no less desperate than it is in times of trouble. Is there a day in which we do not need our God to speak and act on behalf of His people? I'm thinking uh, the moms here can kind of relate to this. Uh, are there times that you are so desperate for, uh, for desperate in, in seasons of your parenting, your children, that you cannot help but pray? Maybe this morning was a bit smoother because it's Mother's Day. We're trying just a little harder to honor you, as we really should every day. But remember that you are just as needy for grace and faith today as you will be, say, tomorrow. And while we're here, children, youth, young adults, is, is it easier to honor your parents on Mother's Day and Father's Day than it is most days? Be sure to ask for God's help each and every day in fighting sin and honoring your parents, honoring the Lord. Not just when it seems hard, but during times of peace too. Ask your parents today how and why prayer is an important aspect of their lives as Christians. But this, the petition of verse 1 is relevant today and every day for the people of God. And God is pleased to work through prayer. It is one of His ordained means of carrying out His purposes. So let us purpose each and every day to call out to Him for help. We need it. When our God is silent or when, we apparently, when He apparently chooses not to act in the ways that, that we understand our best, let us not suppose that He does not see or care. Could it be that what we want may not actually be best? Have you considered that in your discontent state from time to time? We should remember that He is the all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-loving God. He has in mind to bring us good and safely home to glory. He knows how best to do that. And sometimes He is pleased to be silent so that we might actually speak and draw near to Him through prayer. Well, having considered the initial call for help, Let's turn and consider our second point and consider why the help is needed. In verses 2 through 8, we see that the enemies of God and His people are conspiring for violence. Conspiring for violence. Uh, read Psalm 83, verses 2 through 8 now. Verses 2 through 8. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia 
with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. God's stillness and silence described or decried in verse 1 is juxtaposed to his enemies' vocal violence in verse 2. The reason that the people of Israel need God to speak and to act is thus revealed. God's enemies are loud. They make an uproar. They crash like foam and waves upon a beach. And they are proud. They raise their heads. There's a kind of a significant amount of saber rattling apparently going on. And this strikes fear into the hearts of the people of Israel. Notice though how those who are, are loud and proud are described there in verse 2. They're described as God's enemies. As those who hate God. The teaching of Scripture reminds us that this is the disposition of the natural man. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, man is naturally at war with God. How did Paul describe the disposition of Christians before we were reconciled to God? In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he said that we were enemies of God before God reconciled us to Himself. As enemies of God, we hated God. For God had the very place we wanted, His throne in heaven. This is the disposition of all humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Still, there is more. Not only are the people of Israel made nervous by the taunts of God's enemies, they are concerned about the plans that they are making to take action. In verse 3, we're told that the meticulous and mean-spirited methods are about to be deployed so that great harm comes to the people of God. Verse 3 there, you'll notice, mentions crafty plans. Verse 4 mentions consultation. And verse 5 makes the conspiracy explicit. There is even a stated goal to this conspiracy. We see it there in verse 4. Nothing less than the annihilation of the people of Israel. Their name and their nation are to be remembered no more. That these enemies of God covenanted together against God demonstrates that they are resolved to make their mission a reality. A covenant of the ancient Near East was far more binding than the contracts of today. Covenants were often described as agreements that were cut and sealed in blood. Often an animal was killed and parties of the covenant were essentially saying through their agreement, you know, if I don't keep my end of this agreement, may what happened to that animal happen to me. Let my blood be shed and my life be taken if I do not keep my covenant. These nations had cut a covenant in defiance against the covenant Lord and His covenant people. Why are these nations circling Israel with words of warfare? And to be clear, they, they are circling Israel. At least that's the sense that we're to get by how this poem is constructed. The, the nations that are listed are listed in a rough order of those nations surrounding Israel. These nations are roughly listed beginning in the south, working up along Israel's eastern territory, through the north, down along uh, their western border in the Mediterranean Sea, and finally returning to the south. And then these border enemies, which encircle Israel, are punctuated by the great threats to Israel between the 9th and 7th centuries. The Assyrians, called Asher, there in verse 8. Describing Israel's enemies as the strong arm of the children of Lot is intriguing. Lot 
of course, fled Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord rained down fiery judgment upon the city for its wickedness. But here's the thing. Lot was family to Israel. He was Abraham's nephew. These enemies are familiar. They're surrounding Israel. They're far off, like Assyria. And they're family, like children of Lot. Everywhere Israel turns, she finds an enemy. The world has seemingly made an alliance against Israel and her God. Does this not remind us of what happened at the Tower of Babel? There the nations conspired to make their name great by building a tower. They boasted of great plans. And what became of them? Nothing but a pile of rocks and men rambling and not understanding one another. The conspiracy of the nations against God at Babel led to confusion and a crushing defeat by the one true God. No wonder Israel cried out to this God for help. He had defeated the world in the past. And he could do it again. God's people are threatened by God's enemies. And why is this a problem? Because this endangers those who are loved, who are treasured by God, as verse 3 says there. If they are God's enemies and hate God, as verse 2 suggests, and if they have covenanted against God, as verse 5 says, then why have they made the people of Israel the focal point of their hostilities? I can't put it any better than a 16th century Frenchman did when he wrote, quote, The welfare of the people whom he has undertaken his protection cannot be assailed without injury being at the same time done to his own majesty. You see, God has placed his name upon his people and his honor is associated with them. If their name is injured and slandered, so is his. And the New Testament teaches us this too. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Saul was traveling around and persecuting Christians, those who bore the name of Jesus Christ? Do you remember what the risen Lord Jesus said to Saul when he confronted him on the road to Damascus? In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus so identifies with his people that when they are persecuted, when they are injured, he feels it as a wound to his own body. Is it any wonder that Saul, who would later be called Paul, would write in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. He understood what Jesus was saying when he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The glory of God's name is intertwined with the good of his people. The enemies of God hope to bring his glorious name into disrepute by destroying his people. And this makes a great deal of sense again in the ancient Near East, as people thought that the power of a nation reflected the power of the nation's God. Bringing defeat and shame upon Israel would mean bringing defeat and shame upon Israel's God. Now just stop and think. I'm, I marvel at this this past week as I thought about this. Stop and think for a moment about Israel's situation and Israel's history. When God gave the people of Israel the land of Canaan for their home, He situated them in a very precarious place. On the one hand, it was a good land. 
It was often described in terms that were reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. It was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And it was a land that produced grapes and pomegranates and figs. It was the functional route for commerce and travel between the great superpowers of the ancient world. And as such, it was a valuable land. And we can see why those conspiring for violence would want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Who needs a middleman in matters of commerce? It was a precarious place to be settled. And it was also a precious place. For as the surrounding nations passed through to conduct their commerce, what were they supposed to see in the people of Israel? They were supposed to see something of Israel's God. They bore His name, after all. Old Testament scholar Peter Gentry put it like this, quote, They were supposed to see a group of people who demonstrated a right relationship to the one and only true God, a human way of treating one another, and proper stewardship of the earth's resources. In other words, they were to catch a glimpse of the glory and character of God through the life and witness of Israel. Israel was treasured by God because He loved her. And she was to reflect His love to the surrounding nations, those who were by nature God's enemies. How much more should we, who go by the name Christian, testify to the glory and character of Jesus Christ? Should we be surprised by hostility from the world around us? I don't think so. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 25, that those who follow Him will face hostility, just as He did. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told, we're told something of an echo here in Psalm 83. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, we're told that God's people are rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Then just a few verses later, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that God's people are a people for His own possession. You see, God has always had a people for His possession. He has always loved them, though the world has always considered them as trash to be tossed. They have always been His treasured ones, as verse 3 says. The wicked have been trying to annihilate the people of God for a long time, even from the very beginning. And do you know what? They've never done it. Perhaps you feel like you are fighting a war on several fronts. Christian, be assured that God sees every enemy on every front we face. And even the enemies that we do not see. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ promised in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. They can bang and scream and yell. They can raise their heads, but one day they will be put to shame. Our God is able to defeat them. He has done it before, and He can do it again. The psalmist knows this, and that is why in verses 9 through 17, he calls for God to defend His honor, and thus His people, through vengeance. The psalmist even gives the Lord examples of how He has done it in the past, in case He'd like to pursue it again, because this is a good time from the psalmist's perspective. So let's turn and consider our third point. Calling for vengeance. Calling for vengeance. As we do, uh, read verses 9, 9 through 18. So 9 through the end of the psalm. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, 
who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forests, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. There are at least five petitions in these ten verses, and, and perhaps more, depending on how you read them. All of these petitions are merely expansions, I think, or, or perhaps specifications of the petition which opens Psalm 83. Uh, the psalmist and the Israelites have asked God to speak and act, and here they are specifying how they would like God to speak and act. The first two petitions, found there in verses 9 through 12, specify that they would like God to act how He has acted in the days of old. These verses particularly harken back to the period of the Judges. All of these individuals are referenced in one way or another in Judges chapters 4 through 8. And this is an appropriate selection from Israel's history. For those mentioned in verses 9 through 12 were enemies living on Israel's border. They gave Israel tons of trouble in the time of the judges. In particular, the Midianites, they would, they would come in and devour the produce and the pasture, and the pastures that the people of Israel had worked so hard to plant. We don't have time to work through the nature of the defeat of each of these enemies in detail. But let me just share with you a few things that these enemies had in common. Not only were they border enemies, the defeat of these enemies was surprising and unlikely. The only explanation for their victories and for their the enemies' defeat was that God had miraculously defeated Israel's enemies. For example, um, Gideon defeated the powerful nation of Midian with 300 men. A great battle... Gideon only took 300 men in. The Lord kept reducing the numbers so as to make clear that Gideon and Israel could not depend on themselves and their strength in their army, but the God who would make war for them. The Lord wanted to make sure that they couldn't boast in themselves concerning their victory. There was no other explanation than the mighty hand of God. And then there was Sisera. In Judges chapter 4, verse 9, Deborah told Barak that the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And God did just that. Sisera was nailed through the head by Jael during his nap. Barak couldn't claim the glory from that defeat. It was God's plan, and he accomplished it just as he said, by his power. So you see, the people of Israel aren't asking God to glorify their nation through defeating their enemies. They're asking God to glorify His name. The petition of verses 13 through 15 is for God to turn the purposes of Israel's enemies back on themselves. Do you remember what Israel's enemies wanted to accomplish through their covenant? They wanted Israel to be utterly filled with fear 
wiped out as a nation and to have their land claimed for their own possession. Israel's petitions, Israel then petitions the Lord to, to make them like chaff that can be blown away in the wind of His wrath. Israel petitions God to consume them like a fire consumes a forest until it's gone. And don't forget how the nations terrified Israel with words of war. Look at what Israel wants the Lord to do there in verse 15. Israel wants the Lord to terrify them. Everything the nations threatened and more, Israel prays that God would turn back on them. All of these natural disasters would have frightened the inhabitants of that region. But Israel wants God to use them in His hands. Did you notice that? Verse 15, So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. They are God's enemies after all. Vengeance. His just and holy vengeance should be left to His hand. In verses 16 to 18, we come to the reason why the people of Israel call for the Lord to carry out His justice, His vengeance. I wonder if you noticed who was conspicuously absent from these petitions, from this request. Do you see the people of Israel anywhere in these requests? The people of Israel are not making this request out of sinful revenge. No, this request is made for the glory of the name of the Lord. The petition, the the people petition the Lord to bring shame upon His enemies for His own name's sake. In forming an alliance against the Almighty, God's enemies have challenged His authority over all the earth. And that challenge needs to be and will be broken one way or another. The petitions of verses 16 through 18 then are aimed at announcing and accomplishing the Lord's supreme authority over all the earth. In verses 16 through 18, the psalmist offers two petitions for two purposes. In verse 16, he prays that the Lord will fill the faces of his enemies with shame. Then in verse 17, he offers a similar petition saying, let them be put to shame. Though these two petitions may be similar, it may be that their purposes are not. First, the psalmist prays for their faces to be filled with shame that, or more precisely, so that, or in order that, they may seek your name. Shouldn't we, who were once enemies of God, dare to hope that God in His mercy would break the willful rebellion of His enemies by making them ashamed of their wickedness and sin so that they might seek Him in repentance and faith? The second petition of the psalmist in verses 17 and 18 may have another purpose in view. If the enemies of God will not be ashamed of their rebellion, turning from their sin and submitting to the Lord in humble repentance and faith, then on the last day they will face the eternal consequences of their warfare with God. So the psalmist prays, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that... Here's the purpose clause. So that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are most high over all the earth. On the last day, all of humanity will bow the knee in submission to the Lord. Some in disgrace and some because of grace. Psalm 83 looks forward to that day of reckoning. And it tells us that it is coming. Psalm 83 tells us that there is a day coming when the Lord will finally and fully punish those who have waged war against God and His people. 
even if we were to read the two petitions of verses 16 through 18 as petitions for judgment, the question for each one of us gathered here this morning is the same. Are we a part of the people of God? Or are we at war with God? Will we bow the knee in disgrace? Or will we bow the knee because of God's grace? The question for each one of us here this morning is this. On the day when the Lord victoriously proclaims His his authority over all the earth, will we worship Him? The Lord Jesus is the name that is above every name. Will we bow our knee in defeat and perish forever? Because we have sought to exalt our own names. Are we a friend of the world? Or are we a friend of God? Have we covenanted with the world? Or have we been brought in to the new covenant by the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith today. Break your covenant with the world. Die to your sin. You see, we've all been made in God's image. We were made to love Him and to serve Him. But we, just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, and just like the nations described here in Psalm 83, have expressed our hatred of God through rebellion and sin. Instead of living under God's gracious rule, we have rejected God's rule and have devised our own crafty plans. In pride, we have lifted our heads and loudly proclaimed to the world and with the world that we know what is best for our own lives and that God does not deserve the throne of our hearts, let alone the throne of the world. The Bible tells us the truth about ourselves and all humanity. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin, the payment that is due to sin, is nothing less than what's described here in Psalm 83, verse 17. Eternal shame. Because of our sin against the eternal God, we deserve to endure eternal punishment for for our sin. And we will. Unless we are truly ashamed of our sins, turn from them and turn to God in faith. You see, God, being rich in mercy, sent His one and only most precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth. Jesus lived the perfect life, the righteous life that we have not. And yet He gave His life up on the cross. On the cross, He was encircled by enemies, just like the people of Israel were encircled here in Psalm 83. Listen to how Luke describes the world being gathered at the foot of the cross in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. Luke writes, Why did the Gentiles, it's the nations, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. When Jesus was dying on the cross for the sins of the world, the world had gathered together against Him. All alone. With enemies on every side, he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven's only answer was silence. The Father's silence led to the salvation of sinners. 
That is because on the cross, Jesus died bearing the wrath of God for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. The eternal Son of God humbled Himself for all of those who would cease to raise their heads in pride and humble themselves by being ashamed of their sins and seeking after Him in faith. But death was not the end for Jesus Christ. For three days after His death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, and in doing so, He highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friend, I want to urge you to turn from your sins and to come to Jesus Christ in faith today. There is salvation under no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved and must be saved. So come to know the riches of His grace so that you may not be disgraced on the last day. And if you want to know more about what it means to seek the name of Jesus in faith, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend, a family member, or mom that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you could think about than what it means to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith today. Brothers and sisters, how should we think about this psalm? How should we apply this psalm to our lives as Christians? Are there enemies arrayed against us in this world? Yes. The Bible calls them the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is certainly not neutral to us. He has never been neutral towards God's people. We still struggle and fight against the sinful temptations of our own flesh. And the world? Well, the world is also opposed to us. So what should we do? Can we pray Psalm 83? Should we pray Psalm 83? I think we can. And we should. When we as Christians are mocked and scorned in our workplaces, or in our neighborhoods, or even in the public square, what does it look like to pray Psalm 83? I think that it means that we pray that our friends, our co-workers, our family members, our neighbors come to know their need for Jesus Christ. To pray that they would be ashamed of their sins and that they would seek the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for His forgiveness. We can even pray Psalm 83 more generally over the injustices that we see in this world. We can pray that that if those who perpetuate sex slavery or human trafficking, abortion, and the like will not repent, that the Lord would consume them as fire consumes the forest. Verse 14. And think of how loving that prayer is for God to carry out His justice for the victims of such crimes. We may seek justice in these areas and more, And we may even work for justice in this life. A few years ago, I counseled a Christian couple to do just that. A neighbor to my Christian friends had hired an au pair from another nation. They had confiscated her papers, held her passport, refused to let her leave their grasp. 
And after further investigation, it became clear that they threatened her and mistreated her and told her she could not leave. These things happen in our world. And this poor young girl had effectively become a slave. And so I counseled this Christian brother and sister, brother and sister to turn their neighbors into the authorities. They boldly sought justice. And seeking justice and working for justice in this instance is perfectly permissible under the scriptures. And so was praying Psalm 83.16, that the faces of this couple who had enslaved a young woman would be filled with shame, so that they may seek the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. While we may seek justice and pray for the Lord to produce repentance in the lives of others, at the same time, we must guard our hearts from pursuing revenge in the particulars of our lives. We cannot respond to sin with sin. I quoted Romans chapter 12 verse early, earlier, uh, but it bears repeating here what the Apostle Paul says in those verses in verses 19 through 21. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verses 19 through 21, Beloved, speaking to Christians, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, sinful vengeance, sinful revenge, is a tactic of those who do not trust in the justice of God and the God who is just. The most obvious way in which we apply and pray Psalm 83 is, is oriented toward others. But let me say that I think that we need to pray this psalm for our own hearts and souls, like our brother Chris did earlier in our prayer of confession. What is striking to me is that there was never a period in Israel's history in which she did not have enemies. And yet, the greatest threat to Israel was not her enemies, but herself. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel imploded and was forced into exile not because of her enemies, but because of her own sins. Is not the greatest threat to the well-being of the people of God today the wickedness of our own hearts? Brothers and sisters, should we not be ashamed of our own sins? Should we not be ashamed of our pride and our flouting of God's rule in our lives? It is better that we should be ashamed today than we should be ashamed on the last day. Should we not pray that God would humble us and convict us of our sin, driving us to seek the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? And let us pray this psalm for our church too. Pray that the Lord would drive pride away from our church. Pray that we as a church would individually and corporately be ashamed of our sins and so seek Christ day in and day out week in and week out. There is not a single point in this psalm in which the people of God announce that they are self-sufficient. Let us learn from those who have gone before us. We need God. We are not self-sufficient. This whole psalm springs from a desperate need for God to speak and act. And let us always remember that we need Him. Whether we as a church are in trouble or tranquility, let us remember that we need Him. And this is where I want us to conclude. The people of God have always needed God. In fact, if you think about the beginning, 
and the end of the Bible, and everything in between. The reason why we have Psalm 83 and the imprecatory Psalms begins to make sense. This Psalm and the other imprecatory Psalms are part of the story that began in Genesis and is carried on through the book of Revelation. In Genesis 3, an enemy of God and God's people emerged. The serpent was cursed for his violence against God's people. It was a good and just curse. Indeed, he was promised that one day he would be crushed and made to see that the Lord is ruler, not just over a garden, but over the whole earth. And this becomes clear as we work our way through the Old Testament. If you were just to keep in mind the book of Genesis for a moment, then you'll remember that God's covenant with Abraham, he promised to bless those who blessed Abraham's descendants, those of faith, and curse those who curse Abraham's descendants. Psalm 83 and the curses of the imprecatory Psalms are merely working out the curses and blessings of the garden, which is further unfolded as redemptive history progresses. Revelation is at one level the story of blessing and curse. The people of God will know His blessing in the end. And those who wage war against God will fall and fail. So brothers and sisters, we give voice to Psalm 83 and the saints of old when we pray for our God and Father to once again send His Son from heaven to judge the living and the dead so that we might live in the consummated rule of our Lord and King who is the Most High over all the earth. Let's pray together.